Thank you, Phil. <laughs> Good morning, church. And thank you. Thank you so much for your very kind uh, words and also this kind invitation to be part of this wonderful community for the last three days. Certainly, it has been a wonderful, wonderful learning opportunity to me. There has been a lot of uh, collegial exchange. Um, I have received uh, so much hospitality. I can't even begin to count. So I wish to thank uh, the leadership of the school. I wish to thank uh, Dr. Alan Tennyson, who has been uh, my guide and my host, um, and everybody else uh, who has been uh, treating me wonderfully well. I've also been talking to my own school, Fuller Theological Seminary, while I'm here, and I'm very glad to bring uh, greetings uh, from my own school's uh, leadership, uh, my president, uh, Mark Lapperton, my provost and dean, Joel Green, and others are sending warm uh, greetings, and there, there's been a long-standing and wonderfully warm uh, mutual relationship between NCU and Fuller. I also want to acknowledge and celebrate the wonderful, unique role that NCU has uh, in the work of uh, training leaders for the new generation of uh, Pentecostalism, but also beyond that for Lutheran and other churches. So it's a wonderful uh, place to, to be part of. Yesterday I mentioned uh, something a uh, little about what's the difference between a Pentecostal and a Lutheran sermon. There are also differences in how those two communities function and about their administration. You can test it in a most simple manner. Just ask how many Lutherans and Pentecostals it takes to change a light bulb. It takes four Lutherans. Because you need the, the bishop uh, who is uh, granting the permission, overseeing the work, and uh, giving uh, his or her blessing. And then we need uh, three more uh, for the committee who is beginning to plan for the changing of the pulp. <laughs> we only need uh, three Pentecostals to do it. Two of them are praying and casting out the spirit of darkness, and one is changing the light bulb. <laughs> We are so much more efficient. <laughs> Be wise. Find your niche. Or some of you may probably say it niche. That is um, my topic uh, for today's uh, Bible study. And I will begin with the lead uh, sentence uh, from 1 Peter 4, uh, 7, which uh, simply says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. When I was a child, my very um, devout and uh, pious mother used to take us uh, kids to the church. I wasn't always uh, extremely excited when I saw that the time for the sermon comes, and uh, usually they had uh, very long and uh, boring uh, sermons, both uh, in the Lutheran and the Pentecostal church, because we attended uh, both. I developed a, a very uh, specific uh, criterion as to judge 
beforehand if I like the preacher or not. Had nothing to do with the content of the sermon, with the fame of the preacher, let alone outlook or something. Only thing, when the text was announced, the longer it was, the more fearful and dreadful I became. The shorter the text, the more excited I was because there was uh, some hope of getting out of the church in due time. So if I were a child now, and I would have uh, a preacher announce a text uh, which is so short as only one uh, sentence, I would already give uh, a round of uh, applause. (laughs) So the end of all things is at hand. Suppose uh, you were a pollster, you would go out on the streets of Minneapolis, and you would be uh, asking people a question. You would say, ma'am, sir, Let's suppose tomorrow afternoon, all of this uh, world will come to an end. It's going to be like total end. What would you do? Would you go out, uh, do some more shopping, maybe planning for dinner, having some quiet time with your family? What would you do if you knew we only have like uh, maybe 20, 24 hours uh, left? What if you, uh, the pollster came to the church and you would uh, tell the same uh, to the church members and you would say, let's suppose Jesus uh, is returning tomorrow afternoon. What would you think? Some of the church members probably would feel something like a shock and panic and they would be thinking, I couldn't imagine it takes a place so soon. Some would be fearful, dreadful, like I'm not prepared, I need to get my house in order. Maybe some uh, who are very much into eschatology would uh, go back to their calculations and check if uh, Jesus' return uh, is uh, fixed uh, in the right way. And of course, some in the Pentecostal churches uh, who have been attending Pentecostal church for a long time probably would uh, say, oh, this is another way of uh, fear-mongering that we have heard uh, so much. My desire today, when I was led to choose this text, is not to add to any of your fears or to kind of help you surrender because uh, the end of all things is at hand. I wish to encourage you with uh, this wonderfully central uh, biblical message, which is that whatever you do in your life, However young you are, however rich or poor, uh, whether you have a PhD or no high school diploma, the end of all things is at hand. What should we do in light of that knowledge? Let's listen to Apostle Peter. He is uh, telling us that knowing that the end of all things is at hand, therefore... Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without a grumbling. And furthermore, if you know that the end of all things is at hand, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, As good stewards of God's varied uh, grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves 
by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. No panic, no resignation, no calculation. Get to work, have the right attitude when you are convinced of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. And I am wanting to highlight to you three simple uh, principles and guidelines for your life. If you wish to be the kind of end-time people that Peter is here talking about, first of all, we ought to be cultivating and having a sober mind. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be wise be sober-minded, do not get panicked. No panic, no fear, no resignation. Self-control and sober mindset. Do you know what the Greek word that is used here, sober, means in original? It means something like wise, prudent, balanced. In light of the fact that you know all of our own lives and the life of this world will soon come to an end. You ought to be wise, prudent, balanced in your mind. It's used the same Greek term in Romans 12.3. Think of yourself with sober judgment. And if you go to the etymology of the word used there, it means something like healthy heart. Knowing that the end of all things is at hand. Be balanced in your, be wise in your planning. Have a heart that is healthy and uh, doing wonderfully well. And this term, sober mind, uh, appears in first Peter, uh, in the first Peter, uh, no less than three times. In 1.13, so much earlier than our passage, it talks about uh, preparing your minds for action. That's a wonderfully good uh, translation. If you are sober-minded, uh, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, you are not resigning, you are preparing for a proper mode and way of action. And 5.8 uses the same term. Be sober-minded, be watchful, think clearly, be alert, count your costs, think about what counts in life, what is really valuable, what is not, how to spend your time, uh, how to uh, invest on your relationships, and so on. And particularly important sober-mindedness is with regard to our prayer life, says uh, Peter here. You know there are some uh, enthusiast people, and I as a Lutheran priest, a pastor, uh, shouldn't be concerned about too many enthusiasts in my own church. But in the Pentecostal churches, we sometimes have uh, people who get uh, too excited, and if they are very much uh, into eschatological calculations and eschatological things, their prayer life may get out of balance. So one aspect of the sober-minded, wise, prudent, healthy-hearted attitude is that you ought to be praying in a steadfast manner, in a proper, uh, balanced uh, manner. We ought to have a clear mind, focused attention, and pray reasonably. 
Peter also reminds us here that part of that um, balanced uh, and uh, steadfast prayer life is that um, we have uh, patience and, I would say, tenacity. Uh, I don't know if there are anyone here who uh, is a Finn or has enough uh, Finnish uh, heritage to know that um, one of the terms that is often used to describe us who are Finns is the English term uh, tenacity. It's in uh, Finnish uh, sisu, S-I-S-U. We even have uh, candies uh, with that name. Sisu means that um, you are steadfast and you are not giving up whatever happens in your life. You might have uh, heard and certainly have heard uh, when studying uh, in a Bible school or theological college the name Jonathan Edwards. He is sometimes called a 19th century, 18th century uh, American uh, preacher who is often called uh, the American theologian. Once uh, he was asked, how do you know for sure that something really works in Christian life. Do you know what his uh, response is? He said, try it first for seven years and then see if it really works. It's not like a couple of afternoons you are trying something. Uh, try it for seven years. Uh, be steadfast, have tenacity, as, uh, stand your place, and who knows, uh, it may work. So, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, we need uh, to have a sober mind. Secondly, Peter says, we also need uh, to cultivate sensitive heart. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, we read uh, in the text. I think this is a wonderful, wonderful piece of advice. Let others do those uh, sophisticated eschatological calculations and put out their uh, eschatological charts uh, on the church walls. You keep loving each other. You keep showing hospitality, being kind uh, to your neighbors. And I really want to underline the importance of the characteristics or the feature of hospitality for our own times. Yesterday, in one of uh, Dr. Tennyson's classes, we were talking about the fact that um, we should be working towards uh, what can be called a hospitable manner of doing theology. We Pentecostals and Evangelicals are often, uh, we think we know so much and we are so much more superior than others that we are, are not reflecting the kind of uh, kind and hospitable attitude. It will be very important for theology students and also whatever your major is, because you also study theology. And you might remember from the teachings of our Master and our Lord, that interestingly, one of the signs of end times, one of the indications that we are living in the end of time is that uh, many Christians' love is growing cold. Isn't it quite interesting? I am sure that we are much closer to the second coming than we have ever been if I look at the way not only the world, but oftentimes we Christians uh, behave towards each other. Too often we find ourselves in a place 
where our uh, love has grown uh, cold. And the text says, loving one another earnestly. You can also translate it in a devoted manner, in an ardent manner, in a fervent manner. No lukewarm, uh, no second-hand uh, love here. In light of the fact that we know that the end of all things is at hand, we need to be cultivating a hospitable, loving, kind, sensitive attitude uh, towards people. And I know that you uh, value those kinds of uh, virtues in your own life, but think about what would happen in the world and what would also happen in our outreach to people who are outside the church if something like these uh, virtues would uh, become evident and embodied in our lives. If NCU students, if Pentecostals in Minnesota, Lutherans in Minnesota would be known for people who, only, who are not only sober-minded and wise, but they also have a loving, sensitive heart. They show hospitality to each other. Have you ever heard of a sickness uh, by the name prosopagnosia? I don't even know how to pronounce it in English. Probably you don't either. Proso... It's a technical, prosopagnosia, I think we would uh, translate it into English as face blindness. It is a, fa not fairly, it is a fairly well-known um, kind of uh, neuronally-based um, uh, defect in which the person may have totally wonderful eyesight, perhaps even almost perfect, but there's one thing that the person is not able to see and that is to identify another person by his or her own face. It is face blindness. And I think uh, it can be a metaphor of the kind of uh, blindness we often have uh, towards each other. We think we are seeing very clearly all the things uh, divine, and uh, we may be in a, a wonderfully good place in our life and ministry, but we are not truly seeing the other person uh, next to us. So we should um, ask our Lord uh, to help us have loving eyes and uh, discerning eyes. We need it particularly in our own times when we live in a society where we have people who look different from us, who come from different places. We have immigrants, we have uh, asylum seekers, we have a person of another color, how poorly, how extremely poorly, how sadly poorly we Christians are conducting ourselves in this regard. We are not known, certainly we evangelicals and we Pentecostals are not known for being people who are able to see clearly and embrace uh, persons of other cultures, of other religions, of other political persuasions. We need to repent. The end of all things uh, is at hand. We need to have sober mind. We need to have a sensitive heart. And uh, we need to cultivate this kind of uh, loving uh, hospitality. Indeed, there is no greater gift than the gift of love. Mother Teresa, the great uh, helper in the slums and streets of Calcutta in India, she was once asked in an interview, Mother, what is your greatest achievement in life? She responded, 
In the kingdom of God, there are no such things as achievements. The only thing that counts is how much you loved in your life, and she did. A Jewish rabbi was once approached by a young inquiring man. This man asked, Rabbi, how could I make this world a better place to live? Rabbi responded, there are ten simple rules. Rule number one, go out and show love to somebody that you do not know. The young man went out and he was very excited. He goes back to the Jewish teacher and he says, Rabbi, the first rule finished, what are the remaining nine? And the response was, go out and repeat nine times what you have done. I think it's a wonderful piece of advice from our Jewish uh, brothers and uh, sisters. What really strikes me about this text, this kind of love and hospitality even covers a multitude of sins. This Christ kind of love covers a multitude of sins. What does it mean? It does not mean that you ignore demands of justice. It does not mean that you uh, ignore um, the importance of forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, being fair. But it means something like an attitude of love where you consider other people's weaknesses in the best uh, possible manner and where they are not always met with by criticism, but rather support and affirmation. Even if the person uh, has done something very bad and it has to be reconciled and forgiven, you are not the one who is seeking to make it worse. Love covers a multitude of sins and helps the other person to, uh, in a right sense of the word, to cover his or her own weaknesses. I once read a moving story from a Vietnam War veteran uh, his name was Roger Craig. Craig. He was newly married before he was deployed, and of course, uh, he was very much uh, fearful of being sent to the war, to the war uh, zone. And while he had uh, just uh, settled down, he received a wonderful letter from his newlywed wife. And the good news was wonderful. Our first child is uh, on the way. Nothing could uh, have made uh, Roger Craig uh, happier. Very soon, however, he got ambushed and he was taken uh, into captivity. For four long years, he uh, experienced uh, all kinds of uh, torture and everything in the so-called famous or the infamous Hanoi Hilton, uh, a terrible place uh, even for a captured uh, soldier to be. But uh, he got good news after four years uh, that he would be released, and so uh, he was flown uh, back uh, to the U.S. On the tarmac, when he had landed, his wife that he hadn't seen for four years and his four-year-old son that he had never seen came to meet him. And back in the times, they didn't have uh, internet or something. There was very little communication. The four-year-old son was uh, extremely excited. Now I'm going to see Daddy. We're going to get Daddy back home, and he is not going to be deployed anymore. Everybody came uh, 
from the uh, plain, proud, and uh, you know, walking, some of them almost uh, running down the stairs, there was one person who was carried. And once uh, he came out from the door a bit, it was evident he had no arms, because in the ambush he had been also severely wounded. And this um, uh, little boy uh, pokes uh, his mom and says, Mom, Dad has no arms. He bursts into um, tears, but uh, is able to control himself. And then uh, further down, when uh, he's uh, carried this uh, wounded uh, soldier, um, the boy notices something else. Again, uh, he turns to his uh, mom and says, Mom, Daddy has no legs either. And they both uh, start crying. But then... Um, this little guy, he says something that is so loving and, and so appropriate here. But mommy, we never tell dad he has no arms and legs. <laughs> A true love covers not only the multitude of sins, but a multitude of all kinds of weaknesses and defects. Just uh, get married and you get to know quite a bit about how many things there are in your life. Or if you are a single, just try to live uh, faithfully uh, as a single, and you get to know a few things about your life that you wouldn't be uh, appreciating, you know, getting uh, broadcasted everywhere. Have somebody who loves you in a way uh, that we are told here. And finally, we not only need uh, a sober mind and sensitive heart, as we know that the end of all things is at hand, we also need to be having serving um, hands. If you remember, uh, we were um, reading uh, from the latter part of the passage, uh, knowing that the end of all things at hand. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God would be glorified. So, we also need to be investing on service, serving God, and serving our uh, neighbors. If you are wise and you find your niche, you also invest in your life uh, in service. And for that, you need to rediscover, or for the first time, discover the spiritual gift and the other gifts that God has given to, to you. As good as stewards of God's uh, gifts, uh, we ought to be uh, serving others. It's quite interesting when uh, Peter here says that um, we not only are the recipient of various gifts, but we are also good stewards of God's varied grace. If you knew uh, Greek, even uh, Greek 101, you would know that uh, in that language, the term which we call charism, spiritual gift, and which we call grace, charis, they uh, come from the same uh, stem. If you are receiving gifts and you are uh, embracing gifts that God has given to you in order to serve, you are a person who is being graced there's abundance of grace that God wants to uh, pour out into your heart 
Often we Pentecostals might think that you know, I'm not good enough because I'm not having uh, any more gifts. No, it's not about that. To receive a gift to be able to serve means that you are just opening up your life into the abundance of uh, grace of God. And here it says uh, that uh, it is varied uh, uh, grace. I mentioned yesterday the same passage, uh, literally, uh, etymologically, it means like multicolored. You may have uh, various uh, colors of gifts uh, in order to be able to uh, properly uh, serve. Because according to the New Testament, there are no Christians without gifts. Every and each one has received a gift. It might be the case that you are not yet using it. It might be the case, the case that you need some guidance in, the, in putting it into practice. But you already have a gift. Some have many gifts, but you have at least one gift. Whether it's a kind of a doing gift or speaking gifts, uh, it's all the same. And not only are you uh, gifted, but you are also empowered. Whoever serves, serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Not only is God giving you a gift, but God is also uh, donating to you the strength by which you are able to release the gift uh, into practice. And the term that is used here uh, in the original Greek is the one from which we get our term choreography. Namely, in ancient times in Greek uh, cities, they loved festivals and feasts. In order to have a real good uh, party, you needed to have somebody to provide dancers and singers and food and all that stuff. Of that, the term choreography was used, like empowering and making it possible, facilitating, you know, the, uh, having this, uh, this wonderful um, uh, feast. With this in mind, St. Augustine, the great uh, church father, once said, uh, Lord, ask of me whatever you want. Provide me whatever you ask. The ultimate goal in our lives is to um, have, um, is to find those gifts, those um, uh, graces that God has already donated us in order to be able to serve others and uh, bring glory to God. If we want to be um, the kinds of end time people that uh, Peter is speaking of, let us pray to God that we would uh, have a sober mind. We would have a sensitive, loving heart and a serving hands. And I will end with this uh, prayer uh, and doxology from Peter. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, you are all blessed. Amen.